we just need to be a bit more positive and idealistic if we have to be. I mean, we have to just also think completely different. A lot of us look at the transformation, Agenda 2030, and we look, we see the word transformation and it just kind of flies over our head. But we're talking about transformation when it means humans are going to have to change and be brave in that change. We're all going to have to do our bits. And when we talk about change, we're talking about radical change. We're not talking about little things, you know, we're talking about systemic change, the way we run things, the way we do business, the way we run governments, everything needs to change. We want to survive and thrive on this planet. Welcome back, podcast listeners. If you are a regular listener, you'll notice that we have some swish new music. We hope it makes you think of the ocean and nature. I'm Joy, and today we talk to Dr. Justine Bravey, the founder of social enterprise Progress Namibia and a true fighter for sustainability in Africa. Justine's biggest passion is the redefining of value systems towards a more equitable world. And in this episode, she shares her journey with us. We cover all sorts of ground, including growing up as a conservation kid, how looking after yourself and reevaluating what is most important is vital for doing good in the world, how working in sustainability can be a lonely place, how she and her team are driving the wellness economy in Africa away from old school metrics like GDP growth, and finally, Progress Namibia's very impressive work. You'll be able to find the show notes for the episode and links to Justine's work at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. So let's transport ourselves to Vintuk, Namibia to learn from Justine Brady. Where were you born and where did you grow up? So I was born in Johannesburg, unfortunately, <laughs> um, but many people probably disagree. And I had my first two years were spent there and um, then my um, dad, who was very keen to be close to nature and um, probably not in South Africa at that time, decided to take a job up in the Skeleton Coast Park of Namibia in the northern west coast of Namibia. And so we moved up there when I was two and I grew up, did my whole childhood there um, where my parents did conservation work on the desert lion and the desert elephants and all these things and yeah, living in the bush in the deserts. Can you... Because, <laughs> I mean, this is incredibly foreign for a lot of people who will be listening, I'm sure. What was that like? Yeah, it was, um, I mean, I don't know what suburban life is, a small town. <laughs> I guess, you, know. I, I, you know, we were a very tight family group and, you know, there was another family next door and that was pretty much it, um, along with the working force. And we'd just be out in the field two weeks, I guess, of a month, down dry riverbeds doing research. There were my parents, obviously, not us as small lilies. And then, you know, two weeks at the house near the beach in River Bay, which is a very, very isolated little research station, a few hundred kilometers from the border of Angola. Yeah, so it was, it was a very great childhood. I mean, we saw a lot of really weird and wonderful animals, like uh, desert lions you don't see much anymore these days. And um, we also had a family living close by. Well, a couple who were Australian, but National Geographic filmographers. And they were spent like, I think, a decade there almost, trying to pull together a 40-minute documentary on the Skeleton Coast. And one of their pictures actually made the cover of the National Geographic in the 80s. It was a picture of a male lion on the beach feeding off a whale carcass, which was amazing. Um, So these are the kind of things that we grew up with as kids. And um, I remember like being excited to see goats and donkeys because we hardly ever saw things like that. You know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> completely lions the opposite. and elephants and rhinos and things. Can you recall one or two or just the most memorable 
time or memory or moment with an animal growing up? When I was about five, I, I mean, yeah, about five, I had a little tricycle and, and my dad, um, we knew our birds very well as little kids. And of course, we grew up on the coast, so I'd know my seabirds quite well and shorebirds. And I think my dad just gave me this busy job, you know, like as in, it, you probably wouldn't have used it, but he was like, oh, you enjoy birds, go and count them on the beach. <laughs> so, um, so you know, I had this task and I couldn't really, there was this checklist, you know, where you put your numbers down next to the species that you see. And I couldn't quite read, I could make it out, but like, you know, at that age, you can't really read very well. But I remember knowing exactly what birds I was seeing. So counting, sitting on the beach and counting the seabirds flying past and the shorebirds and, and so on. And it's funny that that kind of ended up coming full circle with my PhD. Um, but I remember connecting with, with the wildlife around me, and especially this, like counting the seabirds and having kind of like thinking in my you know, childish way that I was having like a positive impact, you know, in terms of um, helping my dad with his research stuff, you know, but Which you probably were. not so much, <laughs> but, um, but you know, um, I remember having quite a love for that already at a young age. And of course, we had lots of animals come in. You know, our pets were, were you know, oil penguins that would rock up on shore and we'd look after them, you know. Oh, wow. and, um, and we had, you know, sick curly sandpipers and things like that. So I remember, you know, connection to these animals that we had, like as kids even, when my dad would eventually, you know, this, we had one called Mandela who basically became part, so part of the family by the time we rehabilitated that when we wanted to let him go my dad would like would drive to the beach and it's like time for you to be free now and then you come running after the car like no we're driving and the kids oh, were crying no. we were crying so oh, much no. and then my dad was like okay back in the car we'll do this again tomorrow and then eventually <laughs> letting him go and like martial eagles that were fell out of the nest and you know hung out um, and so eventually your... just left, you know. And so a lot of these wild animals that came in and out of our lives but were always rehabbed and let back into the wild. And so, you know, so these kind of things I remember very clearly, but also just like being out in nature and in the wild, you know, and, and, um, and seeing so many animals and kind of, I don't know, there's something about that connection that's almost spiritual and I think a lot of us have lost that and I think I was very lucky as a child to grew up in that space. I mean, one thing that's super interesting that I think we've, maybe we pointed it out already on the podcast, but so many of the people that we interview say that exact same thing. Oh, you yeah? know, like they grew up with animals or being involved in nature or hiking or whatever it is. And now they feel like they need to, you know, work back somehow into some sort of contribution to the world because that's where they've come from and that's what they find really important. So I just find it really interesting yeah. that so many of the people that are out there like, doing really good work for the mm. earth have come from a background of being connected. And mm, interesting. as you say, we're losing it now and the kids today are losing it. I find it kind of silly that we even have a word nature as if it's a separate concept to humanity. We are nature. We are part of nature. Um, and why it's so important, well, we wouldn't be on this planet if it didn't exist. Uh, we, you know, <laughs> Clearly. just that <laughs> air that we breathe comes from the fact that life exists on this planet. You know, the water that is clean comes from the life on this planet. Like, we wouldn't have air if the forest didn't exist, mm -hmm. if the intrinsic web of, of life on this planet literally supports the intrinsic web of life on this planet, and we're part of that. So, you know, we can't say, like, what do we need nature for? We wouldn't be here. We, we wouldn't exist without it. Like, our planet is 
the way it is because of life, of which we were part of that. I wish I'd known that back when I was um, younger and teaching kids in natural science, but yeah. I came anyway. Um, so you've done an incredible amount since you finished your studies and your PhD in the area of sustainability. Perhaps you can give us just a little bit of a rundown of the pathway that you took from a career perspective and how you ended up now with Progress Namibia. Yeah, I mean, I think from an academic um, studies point of view, I was kind of an eternal student, very lucky because I had a scholarship that was willing to like fund that eternal studentship. But in this space, I realized, okay, you know, we're studying things in silos when we should be system thinking. Um, and it helped that I had done education and, and law and, and zoology or ecology, um, thinking about these things kind of connected. Um, is that what you mean when you say system thinking? Yeah, system thinking, I mean, everything is interconnected. One has to think of things in the bigger system. And yes, one can think of it in, in terms of education, different, the different things that we study. But it can also be... How do you look at the at any community as a system, a house as a system? Everything, everything has feedback loops and and so forth. You know, um, positive. And all of us is part of an ecosystem. <laughs> yeah, and all of us is part of a bigger ecosystem. Yeah. And of course, all the systems are interconnected, and the world is one big system. I only started realizing this, but I've only gotten quite into the system thinking space in the recent six, seven years. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert. These system dynamics modelers and so on that are. That's their job and that's what they do. I just understand that we need system thinking and I can and I have some form of it myself um, in various different themes and spaces. But anyway, so the point is that I studied that and I realized, you know, we're not going to fix things doing one or two things. Or Many people have, you know, their one species or their one um, ecosystem or even their one theme that they are very passionate about and by all means... I have a lot of respect for work like that, but I knew that it wasn't my space. And so when I finished my PhD, I went to go work um, for a, a consulting firm here in Vintuk, uh, which pretty much looked mostly at climate change and sustainable um, land management, agriculture, but also within the biodiversity nature space and communications of these themes and so forth, mostly for UNDP and United Nations Development Program and and um, and other kind of UN agencies and also bilateral government etc around Africa and I got a lot of um, experience probably about ten years worth of experience in like three years and wow. I worked wow. myself very very ill and uh, and kind of had a burnout and then travelled for a while did my dream of surfing in Central America and so forth and kind of reevaluated where I was um, and what kind of impact I want to make and what kind of learning I want to do in my life and in terms of my own professional growth and my own personal growth in this space, knowing where we are as humanity and society and the world and what we actually need, where we need to kind of be. And, um, and came back um, and started up Progress Namibia, which is mostly a kind of overall umbrella sustainable development social enterprise um, that looks at all the themes under sustainable development and hopefully works towards the 2030 global agenda, which is a healthy, happy planet, basically. Justine, I want to just circle back to the surfing in Central America. What was that experience like? Was it like a finding yourself? Um, it was a combination of things. I mean, I've I've always been lucky enough to travel because I've walked through open doors through both my studies and so on. And I've always surfed, like, wherever I've gone. When there's a wave, I'll surf it. But I've always, since I was, I think, about 16 or something, I've always had, like, this enthusiastic 
like a curiosity about Costa Rica and the kind of conservation there and the biodiversity there and the waves there and everything, you know, um, when I read a kind of concept. And I, I decided to go there and I've never kind of had the resources to go, um, financial or otherwise. And, um, and then when I burned out in 2013, um, I actually got quite chronically ill. And I had to kind of, I was planning to go, sell my car, sell everything and just go and come back with nothing and sort myself out. And obviously I'm in a privileged space that I have a support structure to come back with nothing too, right? But, but then I got chronically ill and it was already, I was already getting the signs when I was working. It was a very stressful work environment, but I was also not looking after myself in this space. And I think much like you were saying, my value systems weren't always connected with the work I was doing. Um, and so that kind of manifested itself physically. And I had to take like a whole bunch of time off and, um, and reevaluate. And I was very, very sick and then decided like, I'll give myself like two months to get, get better enough to go. <laughs> so it was kind of like both, uh, you know, just be on my own health, eat healthy, live healthy, surf every day, learn Spanish, do my thing, um, and reevaluate and kind of come back into myself and look after myself space, but also just go to the place I've always wanted to go. That actually helped me a lot and reevaluating what's important and so on. Because you get, I find, um, and that's something people don't tell you when you get sucked into the sustainability work, that it, it's often working against the current, especially in places where we kind of work, it's, you're vi very isolated in your kind of thinking and mindset and right. worldview. And so it's a lonely space. And then along with it, there's all the lot work and stress around it because you feel like you're not doing enough. And I think that's, um, it's almost like you need a self-help group or like some sort of yeah. therapy together yeah. with other people who are like-minded to go through it. So, I mean, it was important that I did that kind of like look after yourself first so you can't do anything else for other people. Wow. So that was kind of that trip, you know, many different things. But I think that was the core objective. And out of it came Progress Namibia. Which and not quite. Cool. I mean, out of it came, okay, I'm back now, right now. Um, <laughs> but out of it did come Progress Namibia in the sense that I came back and I did some freelance work and so on. And then I realized, what can I, what impact can I make and how can I help? And, and, um, and how, how would I look, how would I build something in Namibia that would kind of work towards sustainability um, and better enhanced quality of life for all? And, and all of these kind of issues that are quite, intrinsically interlinked and um, use the kind of model where you work where you create also spaces for young Namibians to build their careers in this space and so forth and so I did that I mean I it's by no means perfect and we're still learning as we're going along and I'm pretty sure I would have done things slightly differently but anyway this is how we've kind of meandered again. our way to where we are now totally so tell us more about Progress Namibia what yeah. it's a social enterprise what does it do and who does it help and what is it working towards? Its core mission is enhancing the quality of life for all in Africa towards sustainable development. And so it has two wings to it. One is consulting, mostly around sustainable development and mostly for various from NGOs to UN agencies. And a lot of it is also international. I end up doing quite a lot of work around Africa, but also outside Asia, Europe, etc. Um, and then that kind of pays for our programs, which are more social impact oriented. So both research, but also action connected, mostly around sustainable development and poverty eradication, etc., etc. So these kind of programs that are 
we're a small team, so when I'm saying programs, I'm not talking about like, let's change the whole country immediately, but um, we're doing our, the things that we can to, to improve lives for all, but also change the kind of system in which we're working. Can you give us a couple of examples of the types of projects? So it's quite a wide variety of things. Like work-wise, um, it's like every day is a different kind of day for us here at the office. But um, I recently, as an example, helped um, the United Nations Environment Program develop a big um, project, a five-year project on ecosystems and economics. So how to integrate um, the two in a good way that people start valuing biodiversity and economics without commodification, but basically understanding the value of of, um, ecosystems in the economic space. But there were four facets. One is kind of doing economics of ecosystem services and biodiversity valuation of certain thematic areas like agriculture. Right. Like what along the value chain a lot of the value chains what are important, you know, in terms of ecosystem services, like pollination, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and how can one rethink these systems, the entire value chain from the farmer to the to the shop, um, to enhance sustainability and enhance biodiversity conservation. Wow. In cool. that space. So and then another one is like um, how to find better indicators for um, that are kind of either alternatives or supplementary to GDP, basically measure progress um, around mm-hmm. this space. So inclusive wealth index, for instance, and, and system of environmental economic accounting and so forth. So this kind of space, which is a little bit more technical. And I mean, there's also other jobs um, that we that we do. We do evalu- evaluations of lots of projects um, and so forth. But that's just the most recent one that I was part of um, supporting. Social impact work related, we have one of our kind of key projects that started even prior to Progress Namibia, but started as kind of like a citizen up project when I was all very young and now we're much older, (laughs) like six, seven years ago, Um, 2012. We decided as a group of young Namibians, that's now called the Full Progress Namibia project, but back then it was the happiness project. Nice. (laughs) It was basically um, cognizant of the fact that Gross domestic product is a terrible measure of success for a country. And this is now becoming common knowledge even in World Economic Forums. That what kind of alternatives could we use to test improved quality of life? And of course, there's many. There's the Human Development Index and so forth. But we're talking about contextualized perception indicators. So we went out into the streets to find out what is important to people for to lead a good life and measured where we are. So every and we use kind of the Bhutanese gross national happiness example, but also contextualized it to Namibia and we looked at domains from health to education to environment to free time and so forth. And we um we published the results. We did looked at four different communities in Vintuk along an income scale, door to door surveys kind of thing. Since then it's been published, we've got policy briefs, we've had various meetings with various ministers about it and so forth. We've taken the results back to one of the communities and we've tested ground up kind of grassroots improvements on these results because all the results were terrible. They were all really? below sufficiency. And so we decided, okay, we have a good youth network because um, it was started as kind of a youth group, um, a good network in Shandumbala, which is one of our um, kind of middle income, but still in former township area. And um, and so we decided to work with the councillor, the councillor, of Katatura East and try and do bottom-up kind of citizen-led approaches to improving things together with City of Vintuk and other governmental um, agencies, NGOs and so forth. So we weren't great at connecting and we've 
learned a lot of our, from our mistakes and so on. But a couple of the citizen-led projects are still going now, and Reynold, my colleague, is leading them. So that's kind of a project that we're quite proud of because it's been mostly volunteer-led and blood, sweat, and tears kind of work. Um, and then we have this other thing. I don't know if you know the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, yeah, SDGs, yeah. 2016, we decided to do this World Climate Game, which is a simulation game to get people to understand the negotiation processes at the big climate change conferences. We oh. played this game amongst youth in November 2016 and then we decided wow it went well people really learned a lot why don't we do like this games for the SDG series and so every month every last Friday of the month we do this open acts anyone can come um, where we lead a game creating awareness around the SDGs why they're important how one can do things so what, anything, what sort of age groups Justine, mostly that... youth mostly out of school um, okay. but anything between say 16 and 40 generally um, but mostly it's, it's young students um, or out of school, um, early leavers, and, yeah, like. young professionals, etc. What a great idea! Yeah, and so we play a game. I mean, sometimes it's, it's not always game like fun, fun, ha ha game, but yeah. most of the time it's quite serious conversations. But we always do a presentation on the SDGs, and then we have um, our game that we play. So sometimes it's a community-based decision-making game about some pollution topic, or it's a privilege walk. I don't know if you've heard of the privilege walk. So en enhancing empathy about inequality. And, oh, nice. And so every every game is a different topic, but usually they speak to all the SDGs um, with a focus on one or two. And then at the end, we have like a debrief depth dialogue process. So it creates a safe space for people to openly discuss these things in an informal setting. And that's been running for like two years now and quite relatively successful. So we've gotten a bit of funding for it even now and... You should yeah. totally put that on the internet. I no, no, it is. It is. We've actually gotten um, Kenya, South Sudan, Belgium today, like all sorts of countries wanting to simulate the games. That is so cool. So, how, wow. can you give us an example? How does it work in practice? How does yeah? How does the game work? So, um, for instance, I mean, okay, the game is a loosely meant topic. Usually, it's simulation, role play. Right. Um, okay. You know. Gotcha. So, you know, I can give you two examples. One is called, and we use this. Systems um, thinking playbook um, by Dennis Meadows and these guys. For some of the games because you need a bit of system thinking for the for the SDGs because they're all interlinked. Um, so we'll try and like embed a bit of these skills into these games. But two examples. One is called the Harvest Game, which is about fish quotas, and you basically take the role of a fishing company, and someone else takes the role of government, and you basically play out. And then you have like your limited amount of fish in the sea, they're like bottle tops, and then basically someone facilitates handing out and how many you're supposed to get. So the game revolves around that. And at the end, you realize, you know, how hard it can be dealing with a limited resource. And mm -hmm. another one that we ran recently is called the Privilege Walk, which I'm sure many people who watch this will know it. Um, but it basically, you do it in role play where you contextualize it to the area you live in. So we contextualize it to Namibia. We develop role cards, so you you know you can be a um, a young um, petrol attendant from Malta Hua or something like that, or you know um, a young student at UNAM or whatever. And um, so you have this role. You get into the no one knows what your role is, and you get into the role, and then everyone goes outside, holds hands, and stands in a shoulder to shoulder space, and the facilitator asks questions such as, um, and every time you can. You can answer yes, you take a step forward. Every time you oh, answer no, you stay. Yeah. And, um, and so you ask questions like, you have never felt unsafe walking in the streets. You have um, never gone to bed hungry. Wow. And you'll notice the disparity. And people 
usually have quite a reaction to this because people don't ever think about these things. Mm. And it enhances empathy for a lot of people in terms of how life is very different for many people and, and we don't, we're not born in the same space. I think that's something that we always kind of assume um, and some people have structures of support and you know, completely different lives to others and yeah. how one can create empathy around this and what one can do to help enhance equality in a country and so forth. So you have like a bit of a depth dialogue process after that, after you've done that and so forth. Yeah. So that's just two. I mean, there's plenty of others. Reynold would be able to tell you quite a few cool ones. He teaches, for instance, at this youth center that's after school program and he does the sustainability curriculum for them. So he kind of like embeds values around sustainability every Friday afternoon with these guys, young, young kiddies all the way up to teenagers. So that's another one that we do. I mean, we have like five or six different programs. Um, and can you see them taking that on board? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, I have a lot of hope in, in, in younger generations because, you know, they're still more connected and, and kind of almost intrinsically thinking systems. They haven't been kind of taught yet, like us, off you go, get your economics degree or et cetera, et cetera. You're still kind of learning and quite yeah. open to, to change, um, much more flexible with your world worldview as well. I mean, a lot of people get quite defensive about their worldviews, even if they're, they're based on assumptions that are wrong, um, whereas young, young people are still shaping their worldview. So that's a good, a good space to kind of embed these value systems that are really important for survival and thriving as communities um, on Earth. But yeah, I mean, our biggest, our biggest kind of passion work at the moment is the idea of the well-being economy work, which is also part of the pro, um, progress in Libya, but it's a, it has its own kind of autonomous space. We kind of host the secretariat for that. So the well-being economy research and action network for Africa. Tell us about that. It's a membership of scholars, practitioners, academics, researchers, etc., all with the, with the same drive to transform the economy in Africa towards a well-being economy. And by well-being economy, I mean creating a better life for all within the limits of the planet and, um, and restructuring various things economically. So supporting people and lives and small businesses, connecting, um, localizing, etc. all of these things that are quite important principles, but basically people, planet, um, prosperity. And, uh, and so there's all these different initiatives happening around Africa. And we, we of course, the well-being economy, well, the indicators that we've started publishing ourselves through journals and kind of work, and there's also various others, Nigeria, South Africa, who are looking at, at well-being um, economy kind of options and in kind of the research area space and kind of building local bottom-up things around well-being economies. Um, it was kind of initially put together by a few very passionate um, Africans and, um, and included a person who actually wrote a recent book, Lorenzo Fioramonti, who wrote a book called The Wellbeing Economy. Oh, he was cool. also quite well known for his book, um, The Gross Domestic Problem. And, huh. um, and he's moved to Italy now. He's actually um, running in government. He's part of the Star Movement. Um, so he's going to be probably trying to move the well-being economy stuff forward there. But yeah, so there's plenty of us doing this kind of work and we're trying to look at this um, here. And um, basically, the growth economy has used the growth as a destination, but it should be a means. Mm -hmm. And endless growth is, per is permanently our bottom line. 
but for what and for to what extent um and in any growth is is good growth in the eyes of the media and the politicians and so on but i mean you look at some countries that have like their biggest growth contributors as a result of crime for instance like in south africa private security is a huge um huge part of the right. gdp contribution but that's not an indicator that life is good in the country that's an indicator that people are feeling unsafe and they don't believe in the in the in the kind of social safety um spaces and crime is a result of inequality and so forth so all of these indicators are actually bad not mm. good but it makes gdp go up so yeah. you know that makes it look good destructive in forestry in africa too i mean in namibia exactly you just um, you have to destroy a forest before it makes you money <laughs> you know um creates timber and ship it off yeah. um, but actually there's so much value in a forest and the kind of this forced your cash economy and so forth that many people who are living and spending their life um, have their livelihoods dependent on nature are now forced into cash economies and so forth. I mean, there's a whole issue behind that. But even in Namibia, what kind of economy are we creating? We're very much creating this kind of big malls, big, big industri industry and so forth when we should be supporting small and 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 supporting local where you actually care about your environment because your kids are brought up in the environment and you're, if you pollute the water source, that's where you're, where you're drinking from and so forth. So a more connected space where people actually create more relationships with, with each other, um, where important indicators like community cohesion and these things are, are valued and they're not right now. Mm. And so, empathy, as you say. Really. Yeah, and yeah. empathy, trust. I mean, trust is a huge one that's completely undervalued. And, you know, when we do our work in some of these communities... Like our recent work in Shandambala when we were doing prioritization of what, what things are important. We're talking about a community where everything is not education, income, health access. And the first, the biggest priority they chose as a, as a group of 300 people was trust. If we don't have trust within our community first, we're not going to be able to do anything else. And I think that's something that we totally undervalue in society. Um, but yeah. I, I can see the challenges though because so much of our society is yeah, just no, focused on money and know, economy. It's, it's so, so how does this model sit within this economic paradigm that we have now and this exponential growth and driving profits and salary increases? Yeah. And I mean, that is an uphill battle. No, right? I mean, that's why I was saying how isolated the space is. I think, you know, when, when these guys wrote Limits to Growth, um, what I was mentioning now, the book that came out in the early 70s, you know, there was a tiny, tiny fraction of people who thought like this, long-term change, um, What, where's humanity going? You know, we need to start thinking about these things because we live on a finite planet. Since then, things have gotten worse, but at the same time, there's also been a much, much bigger movement of sustainability practitioners, and I think there's a lot of hope in that space. The fact that big economists, well-known economists, um, like Joseph Stiglitz and so forth, are talking about... GDP not being a good measure. I mean, Simon Kuznets, the architect of GDP, already said it's not should not be used as a measure of of welfare. It's become the biggest policy measure of welfare, economic welfare globally. And that happened in a very short space of time, a couple of decades, and GDP took over. Now, I'm not saying that GDP alone is the problem, but it is the lens through which we see things. And mm. if we change the lens through which we see things, we will see that we're making much more. We're creating problems when we shouldn't be. We can be creating a much better world and it's probably much easier. People always say when I talk about a better world and a different economy, they always say, oh, that's utopia and idealistic. I'm like, no, I think we just become so cynical 
that we cannot see that actually a better world is not only possible, it's going to happen if we all pull together and do a proper job with it. Yes, the economic system is, is systemic and, you know, the basic mantra is, is, you know, growth, growth, growth at all costs, especially if you're looking at the corporate world, which actually right now leads kind of the globe, yeah. leads yep. or kind of owns the globe. I mean, we're talking about eight very rich, mostly white men who own more, more wealth in the bottom half of humanity. Yeah. So we're yeah. living in a world which I, I don't want to live in, you mm. probably don't want to live in, and I believe that another world is completely possible, but we need to stick together. And there is a big movement that's moving towards this, and it's a testament that you guys are going around creating, collecting stories of different people who are doing this. But um, everyone's doing it in their own pockets, and I think one of our weaknesses is that we're not connecting enough in this space. And because the, the change is so big, it's a difficult space to be in, but at the same time, you know, if, if people felt that about previous transformations, I mean, the slave trade back in the day was economically viable, but it was morally wrong. Yeah. And people fought against it and they won. There's bigger, big social movements that have been the same as that, that have made that people in the space that they were in would never have thought that this is possible to change, and it changed. And I think that we, we just need to be a bit more positive and idealistic if we have to be. I mean, we have yeah. to... Just also think completely different. I think a lot of us look at the transformation twenty, um, the agenda twenty thirty, and we look, we see the word transformation, and it just kind of flies over our head. But we're talking about transformation when it means humans are going to have to change and be brave in that change. We're all going to have to do our bits. And when we talk about change, we're talking about radical change. We're not talking about little things. You know, we're talking about systemic change the way we run things the way we do business the way we run governments everything needs to change we want to survive and thrive on this planet mm. and until that like becomes clear to us you know we just have to keep on keep on um fighting the good fights around this space and that i have hope that we can what do you think it's going to take i think it's going to take um like i was saying we're not very good at connecting i think more connection and bigger social movements connecting around this space and, con and understanding that all of it is part of a system, whether you're talking about the Occupy Wall Street movement, down to the Arab Springs, down to the re refugee crisis in Europe, down to, you know, some of our drought issues in, in Cape Town and so forth, you know, in Southern Africa. And all of these issues are interconnected. And they're all part and parcel of, of the same system. We all need to be part of changing that system for the better. Yeah. In our in our own ways, whether it's individually or coming together in groups and collectively, and even at a global scale, some people are doing global stuff. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's going to be like, you know, one champion politician. I'm going to say it's a bunch of champions and a whole lot of followers. Without the followers, without the first followers, you know, yeah. you're not going to get anywhere. But you know, we we really are in an urgent space now. It does seem like an insurmountable challenge, but as you said. There have been times when things looked so set they'd never changed and yet they did. Mm. Are there any exciting innovations or solutions that, that I mean, obviously the well-being um, is, is very exciting, but any others that you're seeing, Justine, that are uh, coming forward to, to solve these issues? I think that there are a lot of bottom-up um, ground initiatives in, in Africa and I see it so much in the youth demographic. I used to be the deputy coordinator for the African Youth Initiative on Climate Change. I served in office, I think, for a few years until 2014. 
and um, and through this initiative, I saw like some how how much there is actually in Africa in terms of young people standing up and saying like you know grassroots kind of activism around sustainability, around anti-climate change and so forth, from countries like Nigeria all the way to countries like Namibia, and, and really young people being passionate about this change and the kind of world they want to live in. So, you know, concrete examples, I don't want to, like, choose too many because I don't want to, like, let eliminate others. Yeah, sure. Um, but I know that there's also, you know, a lot of interesting education centers and social kind of centers that, that move around kind of, the same space, you know, social and environmental kind of um, principles around development. And there's a really nice sense, I mean, just to pull one small example out that always inspires me. Well, there's two youth groups that I've been working with here in Namibia for a while that that always inspire me. And one is called um, the Physically Active Youth Center in in Katatura and Shandumbala in in Vintuk. And they basically work with um, school kids who, you know, go to school in the, in, the, in the morning and then come to the center in the afternoon and usually kind of connect active activities, so basically academics and sports, and then also bring in kind of environmental angles. They have a community garden, you know, Reynold goes over there and teaches sustainability, and these are young kids that do not have support structures in the schools they go to often are not always, you know, the most structured in terms of great teachers, classrooms, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, they have a really nice model on how they, they kind of support these kids and um, create like a, a new young, at least small part of the population that's coming out with these not only good values, but also an education background that can bring them into universities and so forth or entrepreneurship or whatever they want to pursue. So that's one. And then another one that's a lot more youth-driven in terms of the youth kind of doing their own thing um, and not necessarily a center or so forth. And that's called the Young Achievers Empowerment Project. And those are young people who I still work with today who are like older now, but like they're still running this open group for high school kids mostly, but also younger to come to a safe space and support each other through their kind of school years and difficult communities where things like drugs, crime are very in your face and easy to get sucked into and help each other go through like this tertiary education space, whether it's through getting scholarships, whether it's through whatever. And in this space, they have so many activities around sustainability. Like they have, you know, bioenergy efficiency stoves and solar things that they go out and they do climate change projects. They hosted a national youth conference on climate change, like just 2015, you know. And so they do all these kind of things around sustainability and and these kind of things are always inspiring because it's so bottom up and it's so like we want to be part of the change and how can we do that even with very little. And you can imagine fast so forwarding cool. like five years, ten years, where those kids will go and what they will do and what impact they'll have 100%. and how they'll change their communities. It's really I mean, cool. one of these guys actually, I mean, he was already leading the group, um, Michael Mulunga, and his brother John I work with and then there's, of course, Newman, um, Namene Angula and Namene Nikwaya and so forth. Gula Gula. These are all young achievers that actually started the Four Progress Namibia project with me. And Michael Mulunga, he I started with when I worked with him in climate change years ago in 2011. And now he's um, working at the National Youth Council. And he has become like such a leader in this climate change space. And it's just been amazing to watch the growth of this individual, like, and us together in this space, you know. And um, and he was a he was one of the young achievers and one of the leaders. So it's just. It's so awesome. Cool. These people, like all these, all these guys, really inspire me so much. 
That's how so does cool. it how does it make you feel when you see that sort of playing out? Well, I mean, while I may have played a very small part, <laughs> I I just I just feel that I'm 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 happy to know the know some of these guys and you know and and that we can kind of work together. I mean, Michael works with us also in the games with SDGs. So we're kind of like this connected space in a way and we kind of support each other in that space. But it makes me feel really good. I mean, I remember um, when we first met years ago in the Young Achievers project I was kind of getting to know back then. And I remember having very stressful consulting work at that time within this space. And I remember thinking, whenever I went over there and hung out with them, it just made me feel so much more safe and inspired and I would get energy again to be back in this like negative <laughs> you know, um, working space that was like endless and stressful and and permanently negative feedback and so forth and it was just like a stressful space to be in. And I remember that was like my happy place to be with those guys so um, I'm just happy that I, I know some of these guys and that we can continue to inspire each other through this kind of difficult journey you know. To close out or to start the closing out process tell us What's next for you and Progress in Namibia? Um, we, we are kind of trying to activate the Wellbeing Economy um, African Network more. We're getting, trying to mobilize it in a different way, in such a way that we can actually be more strategic in finding the leverage points for, for changing the system. Um, and so in that space, we're kind of doing all sorts of things, um, including you know, getting a meeting of the, all the members together, um, you know, trying to put together a fundraising strategy to actually fund the secretariat, which is like, you know, there's, there's blood, sweat and tears at this point. So we need to like create a sustainable kind of system there um, where it's a little bit more structured. So that's kind of something that we're quite excited about. And yeah, I mean, we, we're about to, well, this is kind of still in the works, so it hasn't been like committed yet, but we're about to work with the National Statistics Agency on on doing genuine progress indi indicator, which is a oh, very cool. nice alternative to gross domestic products and and testing that and actually doing um, a study on that for Namibia and we've already linked with the NSA statistics agency here to do it together um, along with some of the experts who are kind of su supporting us in this process who've done this in other countries and um, and so that would be kind of quite a nice thing to do. It sounds like it's getting to the next level. Yeah yeah and I mean we, we, we're writing a lot and we're in the press a lot um, so we've also gotten some attention from some of the political big wigs so you know we're getting a bigger platform to to be listened to in that space so that's quite great um and of course our ground up movement also i mean just, you know, all these different things we also have this <laughs> this other project um on white privilege in southern africa and particularly in namibia and how one can you know use or create a bit of a social movement around wealth distribution and not only financially but also in other spaces and create kind of more community a cohesive community in this country because you're looking at we're looking at things that are falling apart in countries like South Africa and so on and it's and um, connected to kind of the legacies that were left post-apartheid and yeah. you know 28 years of independence is not going to fix you know more than 200 years of white oppression and colonialism and so forth and apartheid on top of that so like what can one do around this space and I recently wrote an article on that and we've gotten a little bit of social support through various groups who are interested in kind of building a social movement around the space, um, whether it's, you know, through depth dialogue processes, just actually have conversations between different groups of people to 
you know, creating bursary systems to, you know, um, all sorts of kind of testing ground for social um, development. I mean, of course, like if we could have universal basic income in this country, that would fix a lot of, um, you know, the basic issues. But I mean, we'll, we'll try what we can. Yeah. Jeez, that sounds like a lot to focus on. Yeah. It's a few projects. Yeah, just a couple. <laughs> two people. Yeah. 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 Just two people. That is amazing. Crazy. So I yeah, wanted to try. ask you, Justine, if you had the opportunity to get one message into the ears of everybody around the world, what would that be? I think it's 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 a start with yourself first. And I mean I think that's a so hard thing for me sometimes too. But you know, how how are you contributing? What is your impact and and not only in terms of you know, your footprint, like how can you reduce waste and live a more sustainable lifestyle yourself and, you know, decide what you consume and so forth and like change the consumption and production because we as consumers have power, even though we're manipulated to advertising and so forth, we still have the buying power and what we decide to buy and, and you know, how we decide to, to live has a big knock-on effect on others and standing by it and creating that space because I know for lots of people, you know, if you go in Namibia, I go, as an example, to go to like a supermarket with my Tupperwares and say, can you please put some meat into this Tupperware? They're like, why? They'll put it on the styrofoam and then put it in the Tupperware. And so they, you know, because the mindset isn't there. But the more people do this, the more the mindset will change just around consumption and production. But then at the same time, what is your role as a citizen in your community? And how can you actually contribute um, instead of living the solitary family-only existence, how can you contribute in, 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 in ways just in terms of basic human dignity and respect for other human beings and empathy, but also in terms of like what skills you have, what resources you have, whatever. Like how can you contribute to the environment around you? Those would be like, I mean, two things. <laughs> Very cool. Cheated. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for those wanting, and we've just spent 10 days traveling around your stunning, beautiful country. And we wish we had spoken to you before because we could have asked you this question. For people visiting this beautiful place, what could they do? What could they contribute? How could they behave here to be good travelers and good tourists? I think that's a great question because tourism has so many value adds, but it can also become a dangerous kind of thing. Um, if you see some countries, tourism have actually ruined the exact reason why they go there in the first place. Totally. Um, the sense yeah. of place and so forth. And I think it's just support the local communities, the commu this community-based tourism enterprises, support those, um, support the local businesses and, and just treat, you know, all the people that you see and you cross paths with, with dignity and respect. And when you go into the nat natural areas, the protected areas and so on, don't, you know, <laughs> don't drive up to an elephant or a rhino too close. <laughs> respect for the animals too. Um, you can watch some YouTube videos about that on Kruger if you want inspiration yeah, on how no, to exactly. do it right. Uh, yeah, because we've seen some horrific things where people just don't know and they, do, they don't uh, realize it's a wild animal and it's a massive wild animal. Yeah. I mean, that's just a side note. But And also just um, respect where you are. Like if you're going to the desert, you know, don't overuse water and all of these things. Like be mindful of the area you live in and the people who live in that area. And finally, where can people find you and follow along all these amazing projects that you're working on? And support your work. Yeah. Right. So um, we have a website. It's www.progress-namibia.com. Um, and that's where a lot, all our work is on the social impact work. We have a thoughts page. We put out a weekly sustainability news every Monday. It goes out and puts on our thoughts um, on our thoughts page, like our news blog, basically. 
And then, of course, we also we also run the Wellbeing Economy Africa website, which is we-africa.org. And so those two spaces. And we're on Twitter and all of these things. You can, you know, just search me by name. Um, you'll find all these. Justine cool. Gravy. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll, put the links. we'll put the links. Yeah, in we, the description, we, we yeah. looked at your Twitter. Lots of really cool stuff up there. Yeah, no followers, <laughs> but like <laughs> at least we're pushing the, things. Me- yeah. the messages are important. Yeah, That's the messages, the propaganda is important. Okay. <laughs> one one directional propaganda messaging. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, we're working on these things. We're obviously like not, we're not very good with um, social media. We're trying, but we're moving into that space slowly. Well, Justine, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all this wisdom. It's been completely one of the most fascinating discussions we've had. So thank you so much. Thank oh, you, Justine. It's an absolute Justine. pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for having you. us. Let's go have dinner. Yeah, let's go have some wine and some food. We hope you enjoyed this chat with Justine. What an impressive individual. Fun fact about Justine, not only did she show us the most epic bar and foodery in Vintuk, the Wolf Shack, she also gave me one of her dresses that she wasn't wearing anymore for a wedding that I was going to, which saved me a heap of time and most importantly saved me from consuming unnecessarily. What a legend. Thank you, Justine. It's also worth mentioning that the full title of the book Justine mentioned is Wellness Economy, Success in a World Without Growth. And the author is Lorenzo Fioramonti. Sorry about the pronunciation, Lorenzo. It is a fascinating, highly recommended read. We'll pop the link to both the book and the bar in our show notes, so do check those out. Thanks again for hanging out, and we will see you next time.